Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hi, this is Sarah. Welcome to another episode of The Victory Kitchen. This is episode number eight, the National Pantry Census. First off, I wanted to share a couple cool things. One is that my podcast has reached over 1,200 plays, which is so awesome. And I just wanted to thank all of you for your listening and your support. And to celebrate, I am doing a podcast giveaway over on Instagram. So if you'd like to join in, I will be posting more on Instagram. You can give me a follow at Victory Kitchen Podcast. The second thing is that I have a newsletter and this is where you can get exclusive ration recipes from my personal cookbook collection. You can get updates about the podcast and also about my writing because I'm also an author and um, also fun little history tidbits that I come across in my research. To sign up for the newsletter, You can head on over to my podcast blog, victorykitchenpodcast.com, and click on newsletter. Secondly, I wanted to do a quick little update about two things. One is in the last episode, I talked about Uncle Joey, World War II vet who's 98 and has an Instagram account. And at the time that I recorded, he had come down with COVID-19. But today I am so happy to report that not only did he help to kick Hitler's rear, he also kicked COVID-19's rear. So hats off to you, Uncle Joey. And if that's not an inspiring story, I don't know what is. And the last update is about Postum. So I think it was back in episode three, talked about coffee rationing and Postum. And I tried it for the first time then. Well, since then, it has become a fave drink of mine. So it's it had been cold for a long time. So I was drinking it hot and it was very delicious. But lately, I looked on the back of my vintage Postum can and took one of the recipes from there to have iced Postum. And so I've been trying that and it is also amazing. I'll even stir in a little bit of Ovaltine for a chocolatey postum, and that is also so delicious and super refreshing for hotter weather. If you'd like to give some iced postum a try, you can check out the recipe on my uh, blog, and you can look back to episode three, Postum Does Not Equal Coffee, and I've got a picture of the back of the tin on there. All right, so... When I initially started doing research for today's episode, I thought, oh, this is easy. We're talking about rationing processed foods. We've already talked about, you know, the basics of rationing back in episode one. I won't have much to cover here. And I laugh at myself now because of how naive I was. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so this turned out to be a beast. Uh. There is so much, so much that I've learned about just processed food rationing that I did not even come close to touching in episode one. But this is, you know, this is great. This is the process of learning. Um, 
all historians learn. We all learn um, just by doing more research. New things are discovered all the time. And in fact, I just read an article about how they discovered some new artifacts at Auschwitz in a chimney of a stove. And they've been at that site for years and years. And so even they have found new things. So that is just the natural process of research. And so that's what happened with me is that as I was diving specifically into processed food rationing, uh, I uncovered (laughs) some pretty amazing stuff. And the first thing I wanted to to mention is dates. When it comes to rationing, there are a lot of dates floating around out there. And I see other people get confused about it. I've gotten confused about it. And when I talked about rationing, when all rationing started, March 29th, 1943, and that was my understanding. Well, I saw these other dates floating around, like some February dates of rationing starting and then March 1st date of rationing starting. And I just, it was very hard to understand what these dates were. Well, the February dates were dates that the OPA had hoped to start rationing, but it didn't work out. And in fact, I even think I saw some January dates that they were thinking of rationing starting. That didn't work out. But what I did find out was that rationing for canned goods and processed foods started March 1st. Meats and fats were added March 29th. So I wasn't incorrect exactly, but um, it's good to finally understand what these two dates mean. And we're going to dive into that in this episode, along with lots of other fun things. So when it came to rationing like the big time I mean they were already doing sugar rationing and coffee rationing with book number one well now they're gonna gear up for book number two and to do this there was a lot of preparation that went into it one newspaper article read quote U.S. households both rich and poor will feel the hardest impact of total war they have yet known the civilian received only a gentle hint of what was in store when sugar and coffee were rationed Beginning tomorrow, he will gain sharp realization of what it means to supply not only the huge growing U.S. armed forces, but also the armies of the nation's allies and the peoples of allied and liberated territories. In about a month, his normal pattern of living will be disrupted further by rationing of fresh meat, canned meats, excluding poultry, canned fish, and shellfish. End quote. I really like how this uh, article talks about the beginning of this rationing about how sugar and coffee were just, Americans just got a a mere hint of what rationing was to come and what it really meant to support growing U.S. armed forces and our nation's allies and the allied troops and liberated countries. I mean, there was just so much going on that we were helping to support. Like this article says, they were going to get that full impact soon. In order to prepare the country for this new rationing, the OPA took some measures. One newspaper article stated, quote, retail sales of foods to be rationed will be suspended on midnight, February 20th, and registration of the entire civilian population for War Ration Book 2 will be conducted from Monday, February 22nd to February 28th. Exact dates to be determined locally, end quote. 
So sales of processed foods to be rationed were frozen for eight days and couldn't legally be sold. During this time, grocers stocked up and prepared their stores for the start of rationing. Now, during this time, with all these rumors of rationing, uh, in order to protect consumers from booming prices in fresh vegetables that were in heavy demand as a result of the rationing program, the last week of February, the OPA slapped price ceilings on seven staple items. Tomatoes, snap beans, carrots, cabbage, peas, lettuce, and spinach. And this was the fresh stuff. It promised to impose similar price control on other still unprotected foodstuffs as the need arose. And that's something I hadn't realized that in order, because if canned goods had restrictions of, you know, fruits and vegetables that people normally would buy, then the demand for the fresh fruits and vegetables would go up. And so in order to control any crazy price hikes, the OPA put a ceiling on those. During this freeze of the processed foods at the grocery stores, registration of the civilian population for War Ration Book 2 began. In order to register for Ration Book 2, the person registering had to be a member of the household that was over the age of 18, so they had to be an adult. Signups for Ration Book 2 were held at schools with school staff, teachers, and volunteers helping with the registrations. And in some cases, they even had to modify school hours, like sending kids home early so that they could do this registration. The family getting the new ration books, they had to present Ration Book 1, which was they called it the sugar, coffee, and shoe book, (laughs) for each member of the family when they registered. So they couldn't get Ration Book 2 without it. If for some reason they hadn't obtained a ration book one they had to wait until march 15th to get ration book two in some areas where the population was widely scattered and weather conditions made travel difficult because remember this is like february local boards were authorized to use the mail otherwise this registration needed to be done in person now with coffee rationing and sugar rationing before they had to declare how much of each that they had. This was also the case with their processed foods. So they had to fill out a form called the Consumer Declaration, which one newspaper so cleverly coined as a pantry census. And it was to include all persons related by blood, marriage, or adoption who regularly lived in the same household. Domestics, which were servants who lived with the family, or anyone living in the household not related, had to make their own declaration. This form was available at the grocery stores, registration points, so places of registration, and in the local newspaper, which they could clip, fill out, and turn in during the registration period. So there are two parts to this declaration. One was another coffee declaration. They had to put down the number of pounds of coffee owned on November 28, 1942, when coffee rationing started. Minus one pound for each person who was entered on War Ration Book 1 as 14 years or older. Uh, Stamps were removed for all stocks held in excess. So all the coffee that you had extra, uh, they removed stamps to even things out. Then the second part of the declaration was canned foods. And this is where I thought it got really interesting. They had to declare how much canned goods they had over a certain size. So for example... An eight-point stamp was removed from War Ration Book 2 
for each can of rationed foods over eight ounces in excess of five cans owned on February 21st. So in other words, they are permitted to retain five cans or bottles of eight ounces or more for each person in the family. Any more than that, then they would start removing those stamps from ration book two. This did exclude home canned foods. So if you just put up a whole bunch of meat in jars before this, you didn't have to count that. What they did have to include on the consumer declaration was all commercially canned fruits, including spiced, canned vegetables, canned fruit and vegetable juices, canned soups, chili sauce, and ketchup. It did not include canned olives, canned meat and fish, pickles, relish, jellies, jams, and preserves, spaghetti, macaroni, or noodles. On the declaration, you also had to include how many people, the names of each person, and the number of his or her war ration book one, because each one had an identification number. Then they had to sign it, address it with their city and state. Whew, that's a lot of stuff. Um, But really, this was really important because this is where the playing field was evened out. So rich or poor or somewhere in between, everyone got ration books, including the president of the United States and his wife, down to the poorest person in the country. It was meant to make things even. So with this consumer declaration, there were penalties if you were not honest about this and you were caught. Um, and it was really just to make it fair for everyone so that they everyone could get a fair share of items. All right, so how did it work? The first ration period covered March with each holder of War Ration Book 2 having 48 points to spend on ration goods. And we have talked about this in the past, but I think there's some more clarifying information that I've learned since then. So we're going to touch back on it a little bit again. So the 48 points were represented by the blue A, B, and C stamps in Book 2 with denominations of 1, 2, 5, and 8. For the March period, the OPA estimated that this would average out to about three to five cans of processed foods per person, which meant that every family was going to need to add more fresh fruits and vegetables to the diet. One administrator admitted that it was a scant ration, but said people will get along on it so that our fighting forces and the fighting forces of our allies may have the food they need to carry on. Now, the OPA had created an official table of point values that all stores were required to display. Grocers also had to mark counters and shelves containing the specific ration items. There were even stores that had specific designated shelves for the ration items just to make it easier for people to find and probably easier for the grocers to deal with. Now, there were some tips listed in the Hanover, Pennsylvania newspaper called The Evening Sun. One was to budget your ration points, the blue A, B, and C stamps, for buying canned foods over the ration period, which is the entire month of March. Two was to prepare your shopping list before you go to the store. That will help you to shop economically, saving time and saving points. Three was to spend your high point stamps first. By doing so, you will avoid the danger later in the month of having no stamps of proper denomination to pay for a rationed item. Grocers cannot make change in stamps. Um, But we do know later in 1944, the OPA 
would come out with tokens enabling grocers to give change. So that part of the program did improve. And the last tip is don't be impatient. In the first few days of operation under the new program, it will take grocers clerks longer than before to check your purchase. These are a lot of good tips, but unfortunately not everyone followed this advice. Uh, I read this one account of a woman who had been trying to get baked beans for weeks, like during the time when there was the freeze on ration goods before rationing started. So when she could finally get them, she blew all of her March ration points on baked beans. (laughs) I think this is funny. I can actually understand her thinking. It's really frustrating not being able to get the product that you want. And then when you finally can get it, you just go all out and stock up, you know, the reasoning makes sense, but, but it definitely went against the advice of the OPA. People still hoarded and stocked up, which led to a strain on the availability of some products. However, the OPA did stress that removing and using a bunch of ration points at once was not associated with a penalty. They acknowledged that families customarily bought canned goods in quantity, especially when they lived rurally. So them being accused of hoarding wasn't justified. The OPA did point out that heavy penalties would be given if false information was given on the consumer declaration sheet. Naturally, with the start of a big program like this, where you not only have to pay with money, you have to pay with ration point currency, there was a lot of confusion. But specially trained volunteers were made ready in communities across the country to answer questions and help out. Stores were invited to call local war boards or chambers of commerce to get a trained answerer or a helper to come and help out right in the store. Housewives could still place their grocery orders by phone and their ration coupons given to the delivery boys. But they had to wait until a store employee, including delivery boys, could watch them tear out the proper points. Now, when I when I came across this information, I just kind of had to laugh a little bit just because it is very similar to things we're experiencing now. There's been ex- an explosion of grocery delivery services and, you know, they'll shop for you and you can pick it up at the curb. I mean, there's just all of these things that seem so new and um, to a lot of people really fancy Um, but back then it was a very common thing to be able to call the grocery and call in your order and a delivery boy would bring it to your door. So in some ways we've kind of come full circle. Okay. So this is where it gets down to what I think is the most interesting bit. And that is what processed foods were rationed. And I think this information is extremely important just because it just clarifies. I just like knowing exactly what was rationed. It's not enough to say, oh, canned foods and bottled goods. I want to know exactly what was rationed. So point rationing covered all canned and bottled fruits and fruit juices, including spiced fruits, all canned and bottled vegetables and vegetable juices, including canned and bottled varieties of dry beans, such as baked beans, pork and beans, lentils, etc., as well as tomato products such as ketchup and chili sauce. All frozen fruits and vegetables, all dried fruits, including prunes, raisins, apricots, etc., and all types of canned and bottled soups and baby foods, not including formula foods or baby cereals. 
Details on how dried beans, peas, lentils, etc., and dried and dehydrated soups were to be rationed uh, wasn't available at this time. Canned meat and fish couldn't be bought or sold until meat rationing started later in the month. So those products were still under the freeze order from Jan. uh, Excuse me, from February. Now this definitely wasn't a perfect system, and there was some complaining. And by some, I mean probably a lot. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Some women shoppers in New York noticed that a 15-ounce box of raisins was 20 points, while 10 to 14-ounce boxes were only 15 points. Keep in mind, though, that the OPA was regulating the rationing of over 200 processed food items. It was a nightmare. So we have to cut them some slack. And I think... As people adjusted to the ration point system, they just, they got used to it and they probably better understood. Well, at least I hope they understood that it was a complicated process to ration all this stuff. So what kinds of items were not rationed? Because there are a lot of other processed foods during that time that I was curious if they were rationed or not. When I was digging around on eBay, I came across this really cool marketing kit for grocers. And it was a, in the kit was a sign that had a, a no point food feature. So they could feature a processed food that was not rationed that they could buy and not have to use any of their points. So among these things were breakfast cereals, crackers, enriched bread, orange marmalade and other jams and jellies, peanut butter, soy flour and grits, spaghetti, pickles, relish, and jello. So now we need to do a recap of why all of these things were rationed. One reason was because civilian demand had been increasing for canned goods products as a result of higher incomes. And this was particularly true among lower income groups. Part of this trend, experts believed, was attributed to advances in the understanding of nutrition, accompanied by a conscious attempt on the part of the consumers to eat more fruits and vegetables. Another factor equally important to the demand for better nutrition was the part played by the processed food industry in developing its products. So the quality, reliability, and palatability of canned fruits and vegetables had improved steadily during this time. So they had more technological advances, improved processing methods, as well as seed and growing conditions, along with increased mechanization and improved equipment This all meant lower production costs, which made the end product cheaper and better quality for consumers. So this would naturally make them way more popular. And if we look at women's magazines during wartime, you can see there was a huge push in marketing from processed food companies from Del Monte and Libby canned fruits to Bisquick and dromedary mixes to luncheon meat in a can, aka spam, and even I've seen a lot of green giant ads for canned peas. <laughs> in one of my research books called Studies in Rationing, an analysis of selected rationing programs in the United States during World War II, it states that, quote, the canning industry's most rapid growth took place during the first half of the period, which means the early 20th century. 
which probably represented a once and for all shift on the part of the consumers from home processed foods to commercially canned foods. The shift from home to commercial processing also reflected the increasing urbanization of the population. Once this shift was accomplished, processors had to look for new methods by which to expand their market. Of these, the introduction of new varieties of processed foods was the most successful. Close quote. So not only was the products better, but they created a huge variety of canned food products to choose from. And I've got some great wartime cookbooks that are produced by like the Libby company. It just shows an entire shelf stocked full of all the different fruits and vegetables that they offer. And I'm going to have a picture of that on my blog that you can have a look at. I also have to mention fruit juices. This is super fascinating to me because we just take, at least I know I do, I take fruit juices for granted. They're just at the store. The fruit juice concentrates are awesome and they're so convenient to use. In wartime, they were especially popular. In many wartime menus, they call for fruit, citrus, or tomato juice, especially during breakfast time. Canned fruit juices were a relatively new thing, starting with starting with a few varieties like grape juice in the very early 1900s to 1920s, with the variety and quality increasing in the 1930s with orange, grapefruit, pineapple, and apple juices. So by the 1940s, fruit juices were firmly entrenched in American society as something to be served at meals and other times. When nutrition became a hot topic during the war, it increased their importance even more. So two other processed foods in their infancy pre-wartime America were canned baby foods and frozen foods. Both were extremely convenient, so it's understandable why their popularity would increase during wartime when so many women were working. And these two particular things are have enough cool information about them that I will be talking in greater detail about them in their own separate future episodes. Even before rationing started, consumers tended to buy a lot of canned goods because they relied on them so much more due to working more and having less time to prepare meals. So when rationing was instituted, people tended to buy all the canned goods that they were allowed, which also increased the demand on the limited products. In addition to this, the demand of institutional users for processed foods increased as restaurants did a larger business and also in-plant feeding, and canteens were developed, and those places also used canned goods. So these were additional reasons why there was a a larger strain on the supply of canned goods. (laughs) But that's not all, folks. (laughs) Now, we're coming to the more obvious things that I thought of when I was thinking of why canned goods were rationed during the war. One was that canned foods were excellent for shipping to our soldiers and allied nations, and that was those were purchased through government procurement agencies. Government procurement was heaviest in 1942 to 1943 and then 1944 to 45. And the increase over demand in 1942 to 43 over that of the previous year was almost 300%. So 300% increase from before the war started to after the war started. That's huge. A huge demand on the available stocks of canned goods. Tin was also needed for military purposes and tin and steel were used in making canned goods. So steel, from what I understand, steel was 
um, coated in tin and that served as a very uh, convenient and sturdy container to ship and store food in. Another thing I noticed was that I found an ad for coffee being switched from cans to paper bags. So that was another way that companies were working with the shortage of metal for their cans. Another reason for the rationing, which we've talked about before, it begins with the letter T, and that would be transportation. It was restricted. And in some newspapers, they talked about this transportation bottleneck. There were not enough trucks. There were not enough ships, which meant less canned pineapple products from Hawaii as a result. Not enough train cars. Not enough labor. So the same old story for all of the rationed goods. (laughs) So how did companies cope with this? They made tin thinner for certain cans. They also... um, They restricted output of certain less essential processed foods. So the production of peaches, pears, citrus concentrates, mixed fruits, peas, beans, asparagus, corn, tomatoes, and baby foods were not restricted because those are really popular items. But can sizes were reduced in number, so the can size was made smaller, and the output of other fruits and vegetables were confined to a percentage of previous production. So... Um, Things that were not as popular, they just didn't make as much of. There were also some products that could be dried instead of canned, like apricots. And then also specialty items like ripe olives, pumpkin, and sauerkraut could be drastically reduced without any huge hardship on consumers. Canneries had a hard time getting equipment, repairs, and maintenance, but they were given high-priority ratings to solve this problem. There were also arrangements made to provide labor from Mexico for processing. And when wages were raised in the industry by order of the War Labor Board, certain processors were given subsidy payments to cover the increased costs. Extra plants were built, including two built with government funds, both in Florida, to process citrus concentrates, which were in heavy demand by the armed forces and for distribution abroad. Some companies switched from cans to glass when possible Uh, for one example is ocean spray cranberry sauce we're all familiar with the canned cranberry sauce that's like a log (laughs) in the can well that was widely distributed starting in 1941 but because of the war they started putting their cranberry sauce into glass jars And this worked for a while until there were some glass shortages and then companies started putting things back into tin cans. Oh, it was just a mess sometimes. (laughs) And one final thing that companies did to cope with all this was that they published their own cookbooks to keep their name out there. So they were essentially a marketing tool, but it was also helpful to housewives. So it was a win-win. How did the public cope? with all of this rationing of something that they relied on quite heavily. One is a big one, Victory Gardens, and canning their own stuff. In February 1943, one newspaper urged readers to plan their gardens early to produce the crops of vegetables necessary to use under wartime conditions and food rationing. So this included being wise in successive planting and intervals that wouldn't provide too much of a surplus at once, which is hard. I've I'm guilty of this. (laughs) They stated that under rationing, families were permitted only a little more than an ounce of processed food per day. 
quote, folks who want more than 10 ounces of fruit and veg a week this year will have to acquire them from a home garden. We need 125 quarts of vegetables and fruits per person each year, close quote. That's a lot. It's really cool that they've got a number there that each person per year needs 125 quarts of fruits and vegetables. And they weren't going to get it from rationed foods. So a victory garden was pretty essential if you wanted to have a balanced diet. Another thing that the public did to cope was to purchase canned goods locally. So if a woman wanted to can or bottle foods like fruits and vegetables, she could do so. And if she wanted to sell it, though, she had to fill out a special form saying that she was a seller. She had to collect ration points and turn them into a specific bank account. So it was kind of a headache and you had to be really serious if that's what you wanted to do. But that way you could keep food local and support your neighbor. So in conclusion, even though it was a very difficult transition to go from just a taste of rationing with sugar and coffee rationing to full-on processed food rationing and then later meat and fats rationing, I mean, it was it was a huge undertaking not only to organize on the part of the OPA and all the rash, local ration boards and everything, but to be able to cope with it all down the line from the companies to the public and then even the military, they all had to deal with this headache. But we really have to give them so much credit. I mean, they did it. They, There was confusion and complaining a little bit at first, but in the end, they figured it out. They made do and they got creative. And I think that is an awesome lesson to learn. Because this episode is the season finale, I guess you could say, for season one, I decided to feature two cookbooks. And I picked these two, well, one, because they deal with canned foods, but also because I found them to be a funny pair. The first one is called Cooking Without Cans by Betty Wason. And the second one is called Wartime Recipes from Canned Foods. And I've always thought this contradiction was really funny. But as I dove into each individual cookbook, I found what really set them apart. So starting off, Cooking Without Cans um, was written by Betty Wason. She was a noted journalist and home economist. She was a former assistant food editor of McCall's magazines. She is a fascinating lady. From her little author bio at the back, it says that she went to Europe in the winter of 1939, where she covered a long series of war fronts from Finland and Norway down to the Balkans. And as those countries began to suffer the food shortages that always accompany wars, she studied with great interest the way they met their problems. Returning to America, Miss Wason brought with her a great number and a unique variety of recipes from the countries, either on the point of war or already plunged in the conflict, which she then proceeded to adapt to the needs and tastes of this country, the United States. What's really fascinating is that she was in Greece when it fell to the Axis powers, and so she experienced firsthand what it was like to be in a country occupied by the enemy, and it actually took her 
a while before she was able to make her way back to the United States. So really what this cookbook is about is a very broad view of international cooking. And the fact that it's called Cooking Without Cans is really just, this is a book about cooking from scratch. This is teaching people how to cook without the use of canned foods, which as we've already talked about, a lot of people had come to rely upon. And what's really fascinating about this is the international aspect of it. Not a lot of cookbooks dealt with international cooking at that time. You can find them. They're not too hard to find, but not a lot of them did. And she really has very strong opinions about certain things. My favorite is that she is very anti-gelatin salad. She says that is not a salad. (laughs) Um, And I would have to agree with her. So the topics that she covers are soups, meat, fish, and fowl, meat substitutes, vegetables, salad and hors d'oeuvres, desserts, and culinary pointers. I really love this section about culinary pointers because she's got some really great advice, including planning the menu, meatless menus, saving fats, and also she teaches how to use wine for meals and wine in cooking. She also teaches imagination in cooking and how to buy economically. I wanted to read a little section from her chapter about meat substitutes, and that's about pastas. And I feel like a lot of the stance of this book is really just educating the American public about things because so much of her book is drawing from her international experience. So she says, Pasta is the Italian name for all forms of flour and egg pastes, such as macaroni, spaghetti, etc., In Italy, the shapes and sizes of these pastas are almost without end, and nearly every meal starts off with a pasta of some sort as the first course. In most American grocery stores, the only such pastas available are macaroni, spaghetti, and egg noodles. However, if there is an Italian grocery in the neighborhood, it would be well to visit it and try some of the lesser-known variations. The Italian cuisine is the second best in Europe, French being, without question, the best, and all kinds of inexpensive delicacies are to be found on the shelves of a true Italian shop. Particularly in these days of meat scarcity, the Italian cuisine is worth studying, for very little meat is eaten and even in the most prosperous of times in Italy, and consequently they have a wide variety of good meat substitutes. And what's funny is that the very first recipe is for macaroni and cheese, <laughs> which we really associate with classic American food, but at this time, maybe it wasn't. What she says about macaroni and cheese is actually pretty fantastic too. She says, this simple, inexpensive dish can be ambrosial if properly prepared. (laughs) Is that how you feel about macaroni and cheese? Hmm. So in her cookbook, I've been wanting to try some soup recipes because I, I don't get very adventurous about them. So I wanted to focus on soups this time. I tried her mushroom and sweet potato soup. This has sweet potato, mushrooms, minced celery, chives, thyme, marjoram, bay leaf, parsley, fat flour, and three cups of prepared stock. Um, Already, I can tell that she knows what she's doing. I've cooked so many ration recipes, and so many of them don't make the use of very many herbs. But you can tell her experience with a lot of international recipes just because of her use of so many herbs in so many of these recipes. So when I made this, 
it looked like a modern soup recipe to me. It could have come out of some modern blog <laughs> highlighting some awesome autumn soup. And it was very tasty and filling. I really enjoyed this soup. And the thing that she emphasizes is that the great thing about this soup is that you can really sub in any vegetables that you have on hand, which is great when you've got a victory garden. You can add or subtract any of the things in this and still have a pretty good soup. All right, the second cookbook, Wartime Recipes from Canned Foods. This, <laughs> this cookbook is an example of companies producing a cookbook to keep their name out there. This was published by the American Can Company out of New York. So, of course, this cookbook has you using canned foods. And I always thought, why would they be emphasizing that? <laughs> if canned foods are hard to get and they're so expensive, ration point-wise, why would they be encouraging housewives to use canned foods? You'll have to go to my blog to see the cover of this cookbook. It's pretty fantastic. It's got a woman dressed for factory work, uh, a woman in uniform, and a housewife with an apron on. And they're all like marching off to uh, do their war jobs. <laughs> this cookbook was not like anything I expected. I am actually a huge fan of this cookbook. And there's a lot of recipes in here I want to try. The premise of this cookbook is how to use your canned goods sparingly how to make them stretch for a family. This got me really curious. And so I tried a corn bisque recipe. It has you use half of a number two can of cream style corn. So that's just like your standard size can. Three cups of milk, a small onion, butter or margarine, flour, salt, pepper. Super simple, basic soup recipe. It was so good. This was a very light soup. It was perfect for spring or summer. And it's really definitely a milky soup because there's three cups of milk in here. But if you think about it, half of a can of cream corn was able to feed four people. It's for four servings. If you doubled this and used the whole can, you could feed eight people soup. That to me is amazing. And that is what this cookbook is all about. So I will be posting pictures of this cookbook and the recipes that I talked about on my blog, victorykitchenpodcast.com. For the story highlight today, I wanted to do something a little bit different. So I went to my collection of Farm Journal and Farmer's Wife magazine. And I found the issue for March 1943 because, appropriate, that's when rationing started. This magazine is super cool. It combined the Farm Journal, which was geared towards farmers, and the Farmer's Wife magazine, which was geared towards women. And they combined this into one magazine. So you'll see ads for tractors and tractor tires and crop yields and all kinds of agricultural political articles and then you'll have a sweet story and recipes and dress patterns in the other half which I think is so fantastic. There was this column called Farm Kitchen News by Miriam Williams and there's all kinds of like little tips and questions. She answers questions, has recipes and so this was one that I 
thought was appropriate for today's episode. She says, quote, what to do with empty jars is a timely question now that point rationing of food is close at hand and your supply of home canned food looms even more important. Right now, you're probably filling them with canned meat. But that's not all you can do. Our guest cook, Mrs. Claire Gruner, sometimes cans the last of the winter apples. She also cans parsnips in late winter, the time when they are sweetest, and pumpkin and squash are stored in the cellar. We have even canned prunes in the farm kitchen, and it's not as queer an idea as it may seem. Prunes get so plump and juicy when they stand a while in their own juice. Close quote. I really like that. They're giving you more ideas of things you can can in March, which isn't really like a big canning season. So except for meat, you know, what else could you be canning at this time? And I really like the idea of canning prunes. My family is a big fan of prunes. So I think having some canned prunes on hand would go down pretty well with everybody. I also wanted to share with you a recipe that um, she included in her column for pork and bean pie with sweet potato topping. This is a really simple recipe and I am excited to try this. It calls for one and a half cups seasoned baked beans, one cup canned or cooked pork cubes, two cups mashed sweet potatoes, pork stock or liquid to moisten. So you combine the pork and beans, arrange in individual little casserole dishes, top with a ring of mashed sweet potato. Then you bake until heated through and browned about half an hour in a moderate oven of 350 degrees Fahrenheit. What's really cool is that there is a picture of this in the magazine, and I will include that in my blog post that corresponds with this episode. That's it for today's episode. This is the last episode in this season. I'm going to be taking a short break to work on a book I'm writing, but I'll be back in a couple months with an all new season two. Don't forget, you can follow me on Instagram at Victory Kitchen Podcast. You can subscribe to my newsletter by going to VictoryKitchenPodcast.com. And if you'd like to support me and my work, you can go to anchor.fm slash Sarah Creviston Lee and click on support. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.